Well, we are continuing our lesson on Abraham, and last week we finished up on his faith being what made him right with God. The just will be ruled by faith, Abraham's faith, credit to him as righteousness, and how that translates to today, how it's faith that makes us right with God. It's not the things that we do. The things that we do come after our faith. They're because of our faith, not in order to get faith. So um, for Abraham, it was a great breakthrough, and we saw his progression from doubt and uncertainty for what God's going to do all the way up to where he's now trusting God and his righteousness was attained through faith. Now, we continue with what happens next in his life and how the things that seem to happen to him are not a lot different than what we experience. How many of you find that true? When you read your Bible and you read about people, the one thing about the Bible, it's, it's what's the word I'm looking for? It's practical because the people in there suffer and agonize over the same things that we do there may be different times and different settings but they still have the fear and the worry and everything that goes on today so right after God's declaration of Abraham's righteousness he says this in verse 7 I also said to him I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it and so what he's doing, he's reminding him of what he, was, what he was told. He gave him this promise back in Genesis chapter 12. It says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give you this land. Now, he, three chapters later, God's reminding him of the promise he gave. How many of us like to be reminded of God's promises? And it, I need it almost every day. God, you need to remind me of what your word says. You need to be, remind me of what you've already promised me. How often do you read a portion of scripture and you apply that promise today? And then next week, you forget about that promise. Like, where's God in this situation? What happens is when you read that promise a couple of days later, situations change. Maybe fear creeps in or worry creeps in or you just forget what you read. The enemy tries to distract you from what God's word tells you. So we, we pray, and as we pray, God seems to bring these things back. I don't know about you, but he kind of brings them back to my mind as I pray and read his word. And we told Abraham, look, I told you to leave her, and you did it. Now you're here, and I'm going to give you what I promised you. Now we know that God's promises are yes and amen, right? We sang the song last week. We know that God's word says that. But it doesn't mean that they come when we think they should come. How many of you find that to be really true? You want God's promises, you want them to answer, prayer answered, but they don't come as quickly as we like generally. When time goes by and things don't seem to change too much, you're praying for this and you're praying for God to intervene and nothing seems to change, or maybe they get worse. You pray for something and it goes the opposite way. Those are the times you need to be reminded of God's promises. Genesis 15, 8 says, but Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of it? Now, this wasn't a lack of faith, but it was asking basically for a token of assurance. He knew God was going to give it to him, but he assessed the situation and realized you know, it doesn't look like it right now. How's that going to happen? It's one thing that he owns the land. Another, another 
aspect to possess the land. You know, he owns it. He can say, I own it, but there's still a whole lot of people living in the land. How does he possess it? How is he going to know his descendants are going to take possession of it if he doesn't possess it now? Now, God was going to show him what a covenant was. Genesis 15.9 says, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Verse 10 says, Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in half, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut a he did not cut in half. Now, if you do some research on a covenant, they call it to cut a covenant. I never knew that before, but they call it to cut a covenant. And it was to bring an animal, sacrifice it, cut it in half, and both parties would walk between the halves of the animals. And as they walk through, that signifies that if either one of them failed to keep up with the promises made in the covenant, they are saying to themselves, basically, this, may the same thing happen to me that happened to these animals if I fail to keep the covenant up. In fact, Jeremiah 34, 18 says this, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between its pieces. The leader of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf Calf, I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and beasts of the field. So when you cut a covenant, it was a, an honorable thing before God that was punishable by death, as you saw there. In other words, the same thing happened to these animals. If you break it, the same thing's going to happen to you. And it also signifies that a blood sacrifice was central to how God worked with mankind. In order to be right with God, to make a covenant, you had to sacrifice. If you read through the Old Testament, especially where all the sacrifices are, are listed, every one required sacrifice. There are grain offerings, but for the most part, everything was an animal. You had to sacrifice it as a sin offering, as a love offering, as a guilt offering. All those things were, were blood had to be shed because that's how God worked with people. Now, how does a holy God fulfill his promises to sinful people. We're sinful. God works through sacrifices. Now, we have the advantage of looking back and reading the Bible with what we know today. But back then, this wasn't written. They didn't have the Bible. They barely had any of the New Testament. And they're reading it, or the Old Testament. They're reading it. They didn't understand it. God works through sacrifices. But notice what happens next in verse 11. It says, the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, in the Bible, birds of prey are always referred to as the working of the enemy, the powers of darkness. And Abraham was about to experience a great time with God. He already experienced a great victory. And now he's going to experience this great covenant that God's making with him. And what happens? The enemy swoops in to take advantage of the situation. Once we, this is true, I don't know about you, but every time I make a commitment to serve God a little bit better or do something different for God, the enemy always throws something in to distract us from doing that. How do you deal with that? When God is trying to produce something in your life, the enemy is going to do whatever he can to stop that from happening, either through distraction or taking you away from it. 
Now, how do we resist that? Well, James in chapter 4 says this. We are submit, submit yourselves there for then to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Now, Abraham could have asked God to get rid of the birds. He could have prayed and said, Lord, get rid of the birds. Or he could have sat back and done nothing, let the birds do what they were going to do because God was working. He was going to do the covenant. But either of those things would not have worked because God was calling Abraham to exercise faith and do it himself. We are responsible for dealing with the distractions and, and resisting what the enemy puts in our life. How do we do that? Well, the Bible in, verse, in James says this, submit to God, get in his word, and do what it says. Now, I don't, I don't do a lot of counseling. And my wife says I would be a terrible counselor because it would be very short. What does the Bible say? Do it. Let's pray. Because the Bible is practical and it tells you how to deal with every situation. I wouldn't, I don't, submit to God. Do what the word says and go on. I, I came across a poster. And there's a reason that churches and, and Christians have to be careful not to incorporate the world into their thinking and into their church. Because a lot of times the world's thinking is it may sound good, but it does not fit into what God's word says. I'll give you an example. I came, I, this kind of shocked me, and I was talking to Keith about this this morning. I came across a poster, an old poster from the turn of the century around Azusa Street time about an evangelist who's going out preaching and in the poster, in the poster, he references the KKK. Yeah. He's a full gospel preacher, evangelizing, but segregation was heavy even in the assemblies at that time. And I said to Keith, you know, what Bible are they reading? But see, what happened was that was the prevalent thinking of the world at that time. And the church was beginning to bring that stuff into it because they thought it was good, they thought it was right. And they, rather than looking at God's word and reading God's word for what it says, not for what the world thinks, that's how it got kind of off course. And a lot of times we, are, we want to adapt some of the world's thing, and it's okay to do some of it, technology and all that kind of stuff. But when you start doing things that are antithetical to God's word because it sounds good or it may fit this particular scripture or that particular scripture and not the totality of God's word, the, the church starts to veer off. And what was happening here for James, first thing you do to resist the enemy is submit to God's word, the authority of God's word. Not what you like to think about it, not what you feel about it, but what does it say? And it may be totally opposite of what everyone around you thinks. And we're seeing that today with the abortion issue, the homosexual issue, and all that kind of stuff. You're seeing that today, and it's infiltrating the churches. A couple of months ago, I saw a big news article or a video about all these, quote, religious leaders supporting abortion. Religious leaders. 
And they'll tell you that they're doing it because of love and all that kind of that nonsense. But what they're doing is they're not really getting into God's Word and finding out what it says. So the enemy is having a heyday in that area when you don't submit to God's Word. So the first thing you do to resist what the enemy wants to do in your life to keep you from where God wants you to be, you resist him. How, how often have we said, man, the devil's really beating me up today. You ever said that? How about we change that to say this, the enemy's doing his best, but in the power of God, I'm resisting and I'm winning. Passive or negative thinking about the enemy to defeat what God is trying to accomplish in your life. If you think passively about it, the enemy's gonna win. Abraham resisted every attack of the bird of the birds on what God was doing, and he won the victory. Every time you do something or God is preparing you for something, the enemy is going to come in to try to steal that away. And your first job is to submit to God's word and to God what he says. And then the second thing is you're to resist him. You're to make a physical attempt to resist him. Don't do it. That is up to us. You know, the Bible says that, you know, we can never say that the devil made you do it. How many know that? That was a big phrase years ago. The devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do anything. The devil can tempt you. He can prod you. He can push you. But he can't make you do it. You do it or I do it because of our own free will. James says, you know, we're, we're drawn away by our own lusts. So you submit to God, do what he says, and resist whatever thinking is in your mind at that particular moment. God finishes the covenant sacrifice. It says the Bible tells us if we submit to God, we will receive the power of the Spirit, and through that we can resist the devil. And the Bible says the devil will leave you. He will flee. Genesis 15, 12 goes on and says, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. How many know that the, one of the enemy's greatest weapons is fear? Fear. And he will use it on each one of us as we attempt to grow. How many of you are either glass half empty or worst case scenario folks? You get a pain in your arm, you automatically think it's cancer. Or you, you know, worst case scenario. Everything is gloomy, everything's dark, everything's glass half empty. Why is fear such a big weapon? Because fear takes the place of God in your life. 1 John 4, 16, God is love. Whoever lives in love, who lives, who love, let me go back here. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. So if we have love, God's living in us, right? Verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out the fear. In other words, if you have fear, you're not letting God, love of God, drive it out. So when fear comes in, God goes out. And your faith is diminished at that point. Now the Bible tells us there's going to be dark times for everybody. Everyone's going to experience hardships and, and dark times, and some will be more difficult than others. But as we continue to grow in maturity, they're going to continue to come. It's in those times, the difficult times, that you have to cling to God and resist what the enemy wants to destroy. 
as we grow, God uses these things to mature us. God uses all these different negative things to, to help us to be more mature. I, you know, my kids, my grandkids now, I tell them every, you know, school's out for the summer. Yes. And they say, well, it's great, you know, I'm done. I said, well, next year it's going to be a little bit harder. And the year after that will be a little bit harder. And the year after that will be a little bit harder. It gets harder as you go on. And they, they can't understand why that is. I said, because now that you've mastered this, or hopefully, you've got to learn the next step and the next step. And it progressively gets harder. And I believe that's how life is because it prepares us for what's coming. It prepares us to be mature. And when we struggle through those situations and we trust God in those situations and God gets us through, we have now have better faith for the next time it comes up. And Hudson's learning his, his tables and we're trying to drill those tables into his head, you know, so he memorizes them. Because if he doesn't get his tables, his times tables, nothing else is going to work. He's not going to get anything else beyond that. And that's where God has to work with us. God gives us the basic truths first and we've got to get those really firmly in our spirit because if we don't get those, the next step we're not going to get anything. And so God uses these difficult situations to strengthen us and allows us to exercise our spiritual muscles to resist the enemy. And every time we resist him, we get a little bit stronger. And whenever we start seeking God, we either hear from God through his word or prayer or maybe you hear something from an encouraging believer. Somebody comes up to you and tells you something that you needed to hear. That's how God strengthens you. We turn to God, resist the enemy. God uses people to get into your life to encourage you. Verse 13 says, And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Again, God's teaching him something. Yes, I'm going to keep my promise to you, but my timing in my keeping my promise is not what you think. It's not going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. It's not going to happen, in fact, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. Because it's not about you. I'm giving this promise, but I'm also not only dealing with just you, I'm dealing with everybody. The promise I'm giving you specifically is going to affect you, but more importantly, it's going to affect everybody else. All your nations, all the people that come from you, that's who I'm really targeting. And a lot of times we receive God's promise and it's not necessarily meant for us. It's meant for other people to see in us. You know, you go through situations and you struggle and you have a hard time. And I, I think I mentioned this earlier in the prayer. When people who don't know Jesus see us struggling with a hard situation and they see how we react to that, that's what gets their attention because they struggle the same things, whether it's sickness or financial thing, whatever it might be. And we react to it the way God wants us to react to it. And then God provides a blessing to us or God uses that in a, a miraculous way or we get a healing is not only meant for you it's meant for everyone around you who can see that and that's exactly what he's telling Abraham look this is a great promise but it's not just for you it's for those who are going to come after you hopefully the people that come after us 
are going to be encouraged by our testimony and our witness. So when God does great things here, 20 years from now or 50 years from now, people will remember that and their faith will grow. I mean, I've said before, when they started this church 80 years ago, we're reaping the benefits of what they started. And hopefully in another 80 years, if the Lord tarries, that generation will be reaping what we've done. And the promises that we've dealt with now is going to be what helps them in their faith. We have the advantage of looking back and see how God worked that out through Abraham, but, he, but Abraham didn't. Same thing with us. We don't, we're not going to have the advantage of looking back to see how God used what's doing now. But the people in that generation will look back and say, well, I saw God, how God did this and dealt with that and changed things. God deals with us in the same way. We can claim his promises, but a lot of times they don't work out exactly the way we think they should. Why? Because God's dealing with other people in our lives that are affected by what God does through us. If you have an unsaved loved one, your reaction to things may be what affects them. It may be what gets them to come to Christ. Maybe our suffering draws other people to Christ. Maybe God's answer to prayer in our life gets people's attention. When I got saved, it's because I witnessed someone going through a hard, really hard physical issue in their life. And I wanted what they had. I didn't know what it was, but I wanted it. I can't remember any sermons I heard in three years, but I remember her. And she ultimately passed away. But her reach went beyond that. God is giving all the other nations around them time to repent. Remember, Abraham's supposed to be a witness to them. And so God's telling him, I'm not going to give you this land now because I want this, all these nations to see what I'm doing in your life, how I'm promising you this, how I'm blessing you, and as we see his, his fortunes grow, I want everyone around you to see what I'm doing in your life. So he's giving them a long time to repent, 400 years. But he's not going to be around to see God's promise fulfilled. Now, we ultimately want God's perfect will to come to pass, right? We want it. But do we really want it? We want God's will as it relates to us as a blessing. But what if God's will is not that we see the blessing, but that our kids or our grandkids or our great-grandkids see it? I think we all want that. That means we might not see the results of our prayers. We might not see the results of our faith. Hebrews 11.39 is the, the chapter of faith. It closes with this. It says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that, not, that only together with us would they be made perfect. Abraham wasn't going to see the promise fulfilled, but he lived on the fact that God promised him it was going to happen whether he saw it or not. So now Abraham's still in the dark, still kind of fearful. Verse 12 says, As the sun was setting, he, Abraham fell in a deep sleep, Thick and fet, dreadful darkness came over him. And it was during the darkness that God spoke to him. Now, I don't know about you, but I can hear better in the dark. I mean, if I come in here in, in the morning during the daylight, this church makes all kinds of noises. I don't pay any attention to it. 
I come in here at midnight and the lights are off and it makes the same creaking noises, I'm listening. And it's the same in your house. You hear noises all day long in the dark at night, every little bump, every little creak you hear. God speak to, speaks to us in the darkness when we don't see God working. We're trusting God. And it was during this time that God spoke to him. And verse 15 says, You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. God was giving him peace. Right now, peace in the middle of the fear. Now, Abraham is about 75 years old now. And I'm not sure what he's thinking, but I'm, he could be thinking, don't have a lot of time left. How much time do I have left? I'm going to live in peace. Well, as we find out that he lives another 100 years after this. Genesis 25.7 says, Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. So he lived another century after God promised him what he was going to do. And in spite of his failures, he accomplished what God wanted to accomplish. Now I wrote down here, apply this to your life. In the middle of what you might be going through right now, whatever that might be, maybe it's causing you fear. Are you able to continue on or is the fear paralyzing you? Abraham was fearful, but God spoke to him and he continued on. He didn't let that fear conquer him. I wrote down, are you still able to accomplish what God wants you to? Maybe God spoke to you a year ago, two years ago, or you read a promise and you're fearful about it not coming true, it's not happening, not happening the way I want to, and fear begins to set in. Am I ever going to do it? Am I ever going to finish this? Am I ever going to see something? Fear is not going to overtake you if you allow God to give you the peace. God's promises, and we all claim them, when your child is old, train up a child in the way he should go, when he's old, he won't depart from it. I'm going to claim that one. It's actually a principle, not a promise, but it's, uh, we claim it anyways. That your life is going to be a, white, uh, a light and a witness to somebody else. Then they may get saved through you. Those are all promises. We all want God to accomplish those in our life. I'm the Lord who heals you. I'm the Lord who provides for you. All those are who God is. If we focus on that, fear won't come in. Genesis 15, 16 says, In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Again, we see God giving the nations time to repent. He's long-suffering. He doesn't want anybody in that, that area to perish. He knows there's going to be a time, but he wants them to have the opportunity to get saved in it. And he gave him 400 years or so. And here's the amazing thing, verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed before, between the pieces. Now think about this for a moment. The flaming torch or smoking fire pot, that was God. Remember what I said at the beginning, that when you cut a covenant with someone, both parties of the covenant would walk through the cut animals. But this shows only one person going through 
the animals. And that person was God. Abraham did not walk between the pieces of the animal because Abraham was not the one making the covenant. God was making a unilateral covenant with Abraham regardless of what Abraham did. I'm making this covenant with you. God was the one who initiated it and it was up to God to fulfill it. There was no condition on, given to Abraham as to whether the covenant would be fulfilled. It was not a mutual covenant. It was a one way. This was an act of grace on God's part. No conditions, nothing required of Abraham to make this covenant come true. The first example of grace that God extends to man. And today we have the same thing in the new covenant. The sacrifice of Christ is basically a one-way covenant. God made the covenant. He did not require anything of us to fulfill that covenant other than belief. They called that the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant. Today we call it the new covenant. Luke twenty-two twenty. In the same way, after supper, he took the bread, saying, this, is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Hebrews 9.15, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. A covenant just like Abraham, set forth by God, one way God made the covenant with us. He's the one that sacrificed Christ. He's the one that suffered on the cross. He made the covenant so that we now can have a relationship with God and we can receive the promise. Abraham was going to inherit the promised land. We now have the ability to enter into heaven, the promised land. No conditions attached to us coming to Christ. You don't have to work your way in. You don't have to make a deal with God. I was watching a show last night and it, this is probably prevalent thinking in the world that this character in the show, quote, made a deal with God. It was a good character. We, you know, me and God, we, we have an arrangement. Well, there's no such thing. God made the arrangement through Christ. He made the covenant. He offered it to us. It's up to us to simply believe it, accept it or not. Verse 18, back in Genesis 15, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Abraham's covenant was not dependent on Abraham fulfilling it. God was going to fulfill it regardless of what Abraham did. In fact, as you read through all of the genealogy of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and the Joseph and the brothers, a lot of wickedness happened. A lot of bad things were happening. A lot of lack of faith. A lot of deception. A lot of lies. And yet God worked through all of that to bring his covenant to bear because he made the covenant regardless of who did what in the middle of it. And I, I got to tell you, that's, that's encouraging to me because it means that no matter how much I blow it and how much I, I may sin, if I repent, man, God brings it all back around. God can bring it all back around. I, uh, I've used this example before. Suppose your child in the process of wanting to please you, does something that either breaks something or wrecks something in the house. Their, their goal was to please you. 
And in the process, they break a dish or they spill paint everywhere. But their goal was to please you. Now, do you as a parent come in immediately and blast them for that? Or do you recognize that it was a mistake? And their desire to please you is what caused them to blow it. You hug them and you clamp the mess and say, thanks, I appreciate it. And they learn from that. How often in our attempts to do something for God, we blow it. We do it something, we, we mess up, we just misread something or we do something that was wrong and you look back on it and you think, that was a dumb mistake. God does the same thing. God brings it all back around. Cleans the slate and you can start new because God's covenant with us is not dependent upon us. He made the covenant. He offered the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. And because of that, we have a, a relationship with God that God promised us that we have. It's up to us to simply accept it. I'll close with this, Ephesians 2.8. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God. Those who enter into this covenant, Abraham got the promised land. We receive, we receive eternal salvation. We receive an inher eternal inheritance and eternal glory. Those who don't accept it don't get the covenant. They don't receive the promises of God. It doesn't require anything upon, apart from our trusting in that God made the covenant with us. Would you stand as we close this morning? If you close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment. Father, we are so thankful that you drew us, Lord. That you promised us, you made a covenant with the world. A one-way covenant. You promised eternal life. You offered your son as the sacrifice for that covenant. And all you've asked of us is that we believe it. Father, thank you for offering that to us. Thank you for allowing us the faith to receive it. You even draw us. Your word says the Father draws us. No one comes to the Father except the Father draws him. You drew us. You made the covenant. You promised us eternal life. You promised us these other great and precious promises. You've done everything, Lord, to allow us to receive all the benefits of being your children. And all we have to do, Lord, is believe it. Perhaps there's someone watching this this morning who really hasn't understood what all this is about. What well, it simply means that God is waiting for you to respond to his, his offer. He has promised you eternal life. He's promised you heaven. He's promised you a blessing on this, this side. And he's just asking you to accept it, to believe it. And not just believe it in your head, 
but to receive it in your heart. Father, thank you for the transformation you've done in us. Thank you for the way you minister to us, bless us, mature us, grow us. Help us, Lord, to continue to be what you've called us to be in this world, a light to those that are in darkness. Lord, I commit each one of us to you. Fill us with your spirit. We celebrate Pentecost today, Lord. Fill us again. Continue to fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit and allow us to operate in that fact and live our life to please you. And it's in Jesus' name we ask all of these things. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a tremendous week. See you online Wednesday and see you back in person on Sunday. Praise the Lord. Exciting to get back together. Amen.